before we uh, go to Tom for the message this morning, February is Black History Month, and each Sunday this month, a sanctuary member uh, is going to lead us in a spotlight on a historical black figure of faith. So to help us do that this morning, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Brett Cloyd. Today, I'm very pleased to help us recognize and celebrate A. Philip Randolph. Philip Randolph was a labor leader and civil rights activist whose organizing helped in very critical moments in the struggle for civil rights. Randolph was born in 1889 in Jacksonville, Florida. He was the son of a preacher in the African Methodist Episcopal or AME Church. His parents both valued education and sent him to the Cookman Institute, the only academic high school in Florida for African Americans. He graduated as valedictorian. Not seeing much future in the Jim Crow South, Randolph moved to New York City. It was in New York where he was exposed to writings and movements and that supported anti-discrimination efforts alongside workers' rights. He began working as a union organizer. He also joined the Socialist Party and he helped launch a publication called The Messenger, all to advance causes of equality and justice. It was in his union organizing that Randolph saw his most fruitful work. He helped found the nation's first major black labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1925. And the 1930s and 40s became, because of Randolph's influence, two presidents, Roosevelt and Truman, passed executive orders that first banned racial discrimination industries dealing in defense contracts, and later banned segregation in the armed forces. In 1957, Randolph, along with Martin Luther King Jr., organized the prayer pilgrimage to Washington in Washington, D.C. It marked the third anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruling that ended segregations in our schools. It was also part of Randolph's original organizing tactic of incorporating prayer into nonviolent civil resistance. He called it prayer protest. In 1963, Randolph was one of the principal organizers of the March on Washington, which helped pave the way for passage of the Civil Rights Act the following year. In this photo of the lead organizers, Randolph is seated in the center. Because of Randolph's identification with socialism and humanism, he was sometimes accused of being atheist or anti-religious, but he always identified with the AME church tradition, and the accusations stem from a central misunderstanding of what faith can mean, especially in black church. In her seminal book on the subject, scholar Cynthia Taylor describes Randolph's faith as embracing a wide spectrum of beliefs, from progressive humanism to classic Christianity. But his emphasis was never so much on beliefs, beliefs as it was on social action and outcomes. And for that today, we honor and celebrate A. Philip Randolph, his prayer, protests, and his commitment to justice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Brett. <laughs> I want to learn more about prayer protests. I like that. Pray with me as I go into the message. Be with us this morning, Jesus. Help us to understand what was in your mind and heart as you turned yourself and your followers towards the cross. Let us perceive that, enter into it. Find a way to participate in that this Lent season. Amen. So you can show the first picture. This is from our backyard. That's our dead linden tree. Yeah, it's very sad. It's probably 200 years old. It died last year. It had obviously 
predated us moving into this house. Our kids climbed to the top, provided shade on hot summer days. Our youngest son and his wife were married beneath its canopy. And then it chose to go hollow. <laughs> Raccoons inhabited the hollowness. And finally, on a slightly windy day, it tipped over. But rather than grind it into sawdust, we decided to preserve some of the logs as things for our grandchildren to climb on. And then we're going to, you can show the next slide. This coming year, we're going to turn it into this. <laughs> a tree house. We're going to repurpose our dead linden tree. <clears throat> so what it means is that the remnants of the tree will always be there in memory what it was, but we will turn it into something new. Now, there are other places where there have been grander civil engineering projects along the line of repurposing. You can show the next slide. This is what um, a decrepit railway line in New York City used to look like, and then you can show the next slide. This is now the High Line Park in New York City, where they have taken this abandoned railway line and converted it into a public space. So lots of room for walking in a very crowded city, plantings, paths, um, a swimming pool, benches, a lovely place. And what it means is that it will always be a reminder of what was there and what you can do to repurpose something. It's a theme that runs in the Bible. When you look to the Old Testament, one of the most uh, recurrent sentiments is that when God comes and God's way is paid attention to, one of the things that will happen is that peace will prevail. And this is imaged or symbolized by saying, our swords will be converted into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. So a plowshare is the sharp thing on the front of a plow. So what it means is not just that we did something good, you know, that we reused what we were going to get rid of. But every time you're plowing, you will be reminded of how God transformed this thing that was an implement of war into something of life and vitality and peacefulness. So this is, in a nutshell, the theme that we have chosen to present to you for our Lenten series of messages. That when Jesus comes into the human community... He has an agenda. He has a mission. As he is implementing his mission, it's not that he completely creates from nothing something new. He encounters beliefs, practices, structures, attitudes, identities, stories that he takes and repurposes. He remakes them. So the remnant of what was there remains, and it reminds us of what we made of the identities, structures, and practices that we created, but then Jesus comes and transforms them. So it's not just that he produces something new, wonderful, and life-giving. He continually reminds us of what he can do with us, with who we are, with our proclivities. So I'm going to read to you today from a story where Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and sets into this. Uh, sets himself, the scripture says, resolutely towards Jerusalem. I'm going to read two sections, and they're kind of extended passages. So one way, I, the writing is so good 
And the stories are so lovely. The author is amazing. So rather than me summarizing, which would lose so much of what's in there, I'm going to read them to you. One way that I'm hoping to maintain your attention is I want you to, as I'm reading, see if you can detect some of the things that Jesus is repurposing. A structure, an attitude, a practice, an identity, an expectation. And I'm going to have you afterwards, we're going to do our little you know, thing where we break up into little groups of two and three, and you're just going to share. What did you detect? What did it used to be for? What does Jesus seem to be wanting to produce from it? So sadly, I'll tell you in advance, he does not repurpose calories. <laughs> I really hoped he would. You know, I actually thought of giving up calories for Lent. <laughs> but then medical professionals said, no, that won't work. Um, so I'm going to read you this story. It comes, it's about midway through the telling of the life of Jesus that comes to us in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and here we go. Jesus and his disciples departed to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Whom do people say me to be? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist and others, Elijah. But what about you? Whom do you say me to be? He asked them. And in reply, Peter says to him, you are the anointed. And Jesus warned them sternly that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. And after three days, to rise again. And he made this declaration, frankly. <laughs> and taking hold of him, Peter began to admonish him. <laughs> but he, turning about and looking at his disciples, admonished Peter. And says, get behind me, Satan, because you think not the things of God, but those of humans. And summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wishes to come along behind me, let them deny themselves utterly and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save their soul will lose it. But whoever will lose their soul for the sake of me and of my good tidings will save it. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole cosmos and forfeit their soul? For whoever is ashamed, or wait, for what might, for what might one give in exchange for their soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of that one too, will the Son of Man be ashamed? when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So the story goes on. They interact, have some conversations, some amazing things happen. But this is now in the air as they're heading towards Jerusalem when we come to story number two. It's just amazing. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was leading them, and they were astonished. And those following along were afraid. And taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that were about to happen to him. Look, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
And, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approach him saying, Teacher, we wish that you would do for us whatever we might request of you. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, What do you wish that I might do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that in your glory we may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we can. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, you shall drink the cup I drink. And be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but is theirs for whom it has been prepared. And catching wind of this whole conversation, that's my translation, the ten began to be irate about James and John. And summoning them, Jesus says to them, You know that those who are supposed to rule the Gentile peoples dominate them. And that their great men wield power over them. But it is not so among you. Rather, whoever among you wishes to be great will be your servant. And whoever among you wishes to be first will be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his soul as the price of liberation for many. All right, so now it's your turn. Split off into groups of two or three. If you came by yourself, attach yourself to some, you know, to people near you. We're all friendly here. (laughs) There's no... There's no right answer. There's not a test afterwards. But just what struck you in that? Did you detect a thing, an attitude, practice, belief, identity that Jesus was taking and trying to repurpose? What was it? What did it mean? What was Jesus trying to make it mean? Anything in there. I'll give you three minutes, and then I'll bring us all back together. So one, two, three, go. These are some of the things that I detected. Maybe you found similar ones. Just a whole list. To me, I detect at least the possibility of Jesus repurposing, reimagining, redefining, revolution, power, what it means to win, what it means to follow, the cross as a thing, villainy, being the villain, being the, you know, the one in trouble, The disapproval of authority, death and dying, resurrection, the definition of the Messiah, what it means to serve and be served, what it means to be the hero, the nature of planning. 
You know, and the way you can detect that this is going on is just everybody is confused. Because when you have these structures that have been filled with meaning and that tell you how to behave, and somebody comes along and says, well, actually, we're going to save that structure but repackage the meaning, I'm going to flip it on its head, people are just bewildered, like, oh, you know, don't do that. It produces disequilibrium. The one I want to focus on this morning, sort of as an example of what we're talking about, is revolution. So the, the setting that Jesus and his followers inhabit as Judeans, they were an oppressed people group. Rome oppressed them, controlled the territory. And Rome enforced oppression through a scorched earth response to reprisal. So the oppression was horrible, incredibly intense. Huge quantities of resources extracted, people co-opted into doing things that they didn't want to do for the sake of power. Herod, who ruled over this territory politically, was an appointee of Rome. So he has some Jewish ancestry, but he really just serves Rome. And he does it really well. He tries to make the Roman powers happy by giving them all the money that they want, by erecting monuments to them, building new cities on their behalf that he names after them. Herod then actually appoints the leading religious, religious figures. The chief priests, with, which, with whom Jesus often contends, were appointees of political power, set in direct opposition to oppress the people. And so what it means is that revolution was both inevitable, rebellion was inevitable, but it was also doomed to fail. Because if there was revolution or rebellion, Rome did not tolerate it and would squash it violently through mass slaughter, mass executions, massive numbers of people being put on the cross, through taking the rebels, and those associated with them away into slavery through burning villages and towns in a wide region down to the ground. This was the lived reality for the people who Jesus knew and loved. He grew up as a Galilean peasant in the North Country. And so, you, like, the, the occupational choice for many people was either to become a bandit, that was actually a thing people did with, you know, reasonable frequency, or to participate in rebellion, because you just had to. But you knew going in that it was going to be destroyed. And so when you hear Jesus start saying things like, I am going to Jerusalem now, and this is what's going to happen there. It's not that he has some amazing prophetic ability. Like, this is what, you know, in my growing up practice of religion, we somehow came to believe, ooh, Jesus can predict the future. You know, a black cat is going to turn the corner. (gasps) I'm going to go, and bad things are going to happen to me. It was obvious. And that's why Jesus asks these questions. It's like, What are people thinking about me? Are they catching on to who I seem to be? And when he starts to be identified as a heroic religious figure from the past, and especially as, as Morpheus would say, the one, you're the anointed, Jesus knows. Okay, we're heading towards it. I know what's going to happen to me now. 
And he puts in a lot of effort to delay it. You know, this is why he's always saying, don't tell anybody. Yeah, you're right, but keep it under wraps. Because he wants to prolong the inevitable for as long as he can. The mystery <laughs> is the disciples' response. You know, that they don't say, well, of course. And I imagine it's because those who are participating in rebellion have to hope that this time it's going to work. This time the revolution will succeed, and they have evidence. You know, Jesus does amazing things. He heals people, preaches this incredible message, produces miracles. So maybe there is some reason to hope that this time it will be different than all the other times that this has been tried in the past. You know, but when they say, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen, they are hoping that this occurrence will be different. Okay, that this occurrence of rebellion, this occurrence of revolution, that this time it'll work, that this time we'll win. And so they start to make the kinds of plans that would go along with that. If you are going to practice revolution, you need to plan for that, you need to strategize for that. And here's where we begin to see just the dramatic difference between their expectation of what's to come and what Jesus wants to do, right? In their imagination, as they're planning for revolution, they want to strategize. They want to make plans. They want to get people in place, develop time. Uh, do we need weapons? Are we going to engage in military conflict? Do we need to gather adherents, rally people to the cause? And they're also planning for their own, you know, good outcome. <laughs> what seat do I get at the cabinet table? You know, they're checking out their Herman Miller air on chair and wheeling it up to the cabinet table and, ooh, this is nice, and which place will I occupy at the table? And Jesus just has this remarkably different agenda. Jesus is about none of that. What Jesus says is, as we prepare for revolution, here's what I need you to be doing. I need you to practice diminishing your personal agenda. I need, to let, I need you to let go of your soul. And the development of your soul, the magnification, we might use the term self today. This totality of being that is you. I need you to let go of that being magnified, of being made more, of being made great. And a specific manifestation of this is in the way you relate to each other. It, it has this feeling like Jesus is, <laughs> he's, he's, he's uh, the captain of a ship that's going over a waterfall. Or he's piling a spaceship into the sun. Like, this is going to crash and burn. Right? The end is coming. And so here's what I need you to do as we're getting ready for this. I need you to serve each other. I need you to practice service. I need you to put others ahead of yourself. And I need you to do it now. And it's remarkable the degree to which Jesus does not engage in the kind of strategizing we would think would be important to rebellion and to revolution. <laughs> he says to his disciples, for example, you're going to be caught too. 
You're also going to be apprehended and dragged before authorities, but I don't want you to work out your speeches in advance. Like, how will you respond when you're accused? This is what they're going to say, and this is what you need to say, and here's how you, here's how you keep, you know. Jesus says, don't think about that. What he says to them is the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And I'm kind of thinking, yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, like, okay, that's a little, you know, less information than what I would want. <clears throat> But I think what Jesus is saying is, I need you to be paying attention now to doing community this way, to doing love this way. Set everything else aside. As you and I head into the sun, I need you first and foremost to love each other. It's an amazing instruction, and it's kind of baffling to me why Jesus, why it's so important for Jesus to have this be what he's telling them to do as they go into the teeth of revolution, what he's telling them to do now. Like, well, Jesus, why can't we just, we'll wake up, you know, and you'll be alive again, and then we'll figure out what to do next. And it's, it's also kind of surprising how little reassurance the disciples take from this whole, in three days I'll rise again. You know, it's as if it just doesn't even register with them. Like, oh, whatever, Jesus, no! You're going to live, and we're going to win, and we're going to be in power. And Even when he sends them out on his mission, like he has these trainees, and at one point he sends them all out into the towns and villages to do the Jesus thing. If he were launching the revolution, and they were planning for it and strategizing, this would be a mission to gain adherence. Right, to say to the people, yeah, the revolution's on. We need you to be in. Are you in? Can you give us some money? Can you give us some weapons, some time, some people? Ugh. It's just none of it for Jesus. What he says to them is heal their sicknesses, cast out their demons, tell them the good news, and then head on your way. Right, This mission of love and giving and generosity and I've come to think that the reason Jesus, it's so important, it's like an obsession with him, again and again and again, is he knows that when trouble comes, his followers, like all human beings, will revert to what's in them, will revert to business as usual. And so we have to practice this now, so that when trouble comes, we might actually be able to do it. We might be able to pull this off. And I think, too, that whatever Jesus conceived of as the cosmic implications of what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem, the cosmic implications of him dying, coming back to life, it was this thing that he most wanted to be perpetuated afterwards, that he most wanted to be in existence after he did come back to life and then went on his way, was a human community where as we face the troubles we face, as we stare down nefarious power, as we challenge systems, that there is a human community where the foundation of it is this kind of love, this kind of self-emptying, championing the other, that this is what Jesus envisioned as the thing that would be carried on on the other side of this all.
It's just a remarkable instruction and a remarkable passion of his. You know, I said this is about repurposing. So Jesus repurposes many things. The sacraments that we have, baptism, communion, our form of communion is a repurposing of the Passover festival, filling it with a different meaning. But one of the things that Jesus creates out of nothing that stands along the other sacraments, stands along with them, is the foot washing, right? Jesus, as he approaches, he's like, the day before, he's going to be taken away. And he looks at his disciples, and they're still all, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? Me, me, me. He implements this visceral lesson in self-emptying, in serving, If I treat you this way, this is how you must treat everyone else around you, right? That is a sacrament of Jesus designed to communicate this message. So I feel it within myself, the, the energy of Jesus behind producing this way of us relating to each other. And it carries with it both kind of a, this is for everything, but this is also for the human community. The community of followers of Jesus, specifically. I don't think that the only way into this way of behaving, or thinking about behaving, I don't think the only way into it is through Jesus. I don't think that's what he's saying. I do think he's saying you can't think of yourself as a follower of me if you don't do this. Like, this is pretty essential to what it means to be in the Jesus community or the community of Jesus followers. That Jesus wants on the planet a group of people who have committed to this way of loving, to this way of being, to this is the foundation for how we interact with each other, for how we stare down trouble, for how we do revolution and rebellion and power, the whole gamut of things that he's repurposing. You know, so here's where I would love to give a story of my own awesomeness in this regard. Oh, I'm just selfless all over the place. and Just really, really great at putting everybody ahead of myself. My wife is here, so I can't say that, right? She is way better at this than me. But I, I long for it for our faith community. And I, I feel like it, I require help in both perceiving this and in putting it into place. The kind of help that I find through Jesus. I long for this to be a faith community like this too. Many of us have stared down nefarious power, probably not as overtly or as threateningly as what Jesus and his followers were engaged in, but... Many of us have come into contact with systems of power that would seek to co-opt us, that would seek to take over our soul, where if we want to hang out to our soul, we need to say no to that, right? So my longing is that this would be that kind of place. So what I want to do as we come to a close is just take one more moment, this time just you yourself, of reflection. Does this invitation of Jesus land with you anywhere? How would you more deeply enter into the ethic that he's describing? Can you see this happening with yourself towards others, towards people in this faith community? 
towards people in other settings? What is the invitation from Jesus to you as you confront the powers that rage around you? So Jesus, we give you this moment. We hear your call. Help us to find our way into what it is you're trying to create here on earth. Jesus, I pray that, you know, to whatever degree we can engage with your mission in this Lenten season, whatever practices we implement to declutter our lives, that a part of it would be to perceive this way of being, this way of loving, this way of doing human community that you just were relentless in pursuit of. May we experience your protection and sheltering as we try to put this into place here with each other. Amen.